When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Euros with Football Social Daily. Hello, I'm Jim Salverson and this is Football Social Daily, making sure you're in the know when it comes to the European Championships. There are shows every day, Monday to Friday, extra podcasts when England are in action so you can keep up to date with everything that's going on during the Euros. England, by the way, in action tomorrow night against Germany. That's a game that has destiny written all over it. We'll be looking at that fully on tomorrow's podcast. But today, it's a look back over the weekend's games with Denmark ending Welsh hopes, Italy going back to being very Italian in their style of football as they struggled against Austria and a double Dutch as the Czechs put two past Holland to see the Dutch going home early. We'll also look ahead to tonight's matches as tournament favourites France face the Swiss and Spain take on Croatia. Plus, not to forget our roots in the Premier League. There'll be a rumour wrap at the end of today's podcast as we discuss some of the hottest transfer news. Today, it's Southampton, West Ham and Arsenal who are seemingly making moves in the market. More to come on that shortly on today's podcast. Marley Anderson, who's now the wrong side of 30, taking a hit to his transfer value. How are you doing, Marley? OK, happy birthday. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, it was a bit of a weird one. Um, yeah, because positive COVID test ruined it, but never mind. Uh, from Not not even from nice me. Nice birthday present. <laughs> yeah. No, honestly, um, <laughs> I think we mentioned it on Friday's podcast with, uh, with Leon and... Uh, with Fergal, um, and basically, we before we signed off the the, the podcast, we had a little chat uh, after we, we finished recording, um, and I told them that I'd just done a one of them quick COVID tests just just before because everyone was coming for a party on Saturday, so I thought I'd, I'd do a test and, and be responsible and make sure I'm I'm negative sort of thing. Um, so as soon as we we finished recording on Friday, I went into the bathroom. Uh, where I'd left the the test to, to sort of sort, like sort itself out because you got to leave it half an hour. Looked at the lines, negative. I was like, yes, mint, great. Came out the uh, thing. My girlfriend's coming up the stairs, and I looked at her, and she's got tears in her eyes, and I'm like, what's up? And she went, I'm positive. And oh. I was like, oh, for f- 
Sick. <laughs> you need to check what sort of test you've oh, done. Yeah. <laughs> That's not classed as positive or negative, is that? I think. I think there's more. <laughs> so bad news for Marley at the weekend. You need to be an international footballer because having COVID or like, testing positive for COVID doesn't seem to affect anyone around them. There seems to be completely well, different rules concerning. I've just applied that. for a job at UEFA so I can uh, pass, <laughs> pass the list. There you go. Easy I'm job. A VIP. The other voice you just heard there, Narmacorn, back off his summer training camp in Cornwall. You're right, Niall. Good break. Yeah, very good break got in the sea surfed a few waves turned the phone off didn't watch too much football apart from the England game shouted at the TV decided I hated football and now I'm back so <laughs> there you go uh, yeah it was a great week <laughs> same old same old right let's yeah. talk about the football then because there's a load of games to go back over from this weekend just gone we'll try and touch on all of them pick out the interesting parts and let's start with I don't know can we class this as the shock of the tournament so far it was Netherlands nil Czech Republic 2 did you see this one coming in any way, shape or form, Marley? Sort of yes and no, because, I mean, when we were talking about Holland at the start of the competition and they were, you know, coming through the group stage pretty easily, you, Holland have never done this, never in the history really done something that they're expected to do. Like, you know, even though they've got talent at their disposal, you never sort of can be positive that they're going to win a game or go far. Um, and... The, one thing we were saying earlier on in the tournament is, you know, Frank De Boer is not a good manager. Um, and he's even though he's leading quite a talented squad and they've got the means to go very, very far, they had, they had everything they needed to get to the final of this competition. They had a good draw. They were in good form. Um, and they had a relatively straightforward last 16 game against Czech Republic. But, you know, they they did what they do and they, they self-destructed. Um, you know, Delict's uh, handball, obviously is the one that, that changed the game. Um, and then from there on, it, they were almost just waiting to get beat because Czech Republic were all over them and it looked like there was only going to be one winner from that moment. So I don't really think you can call it... You can call it a shock. You've got to call it a shock because Czech Republic aren't... You know, they haven't looked amazing even though they've got Patrick Schick who scored four goals or whatever, but two of them against Scotland, so they don't really count. Um, so... It's uh, it's not really a shock, but it kind of it, you can't you sort of have to uh, say discrediting it, say the greatest it. Euros goal of all time. <laughs> doesn't yeah. count. He's only chipped in from fifty yards. Don't worry about it, lads. We can chalk that one off. Doesn't count. If if uh, if that was still going on, David Marshall will be still running back to his goal. He's that slow. Thirty six year old goalkeeper. Um, but yeah, so it, it's kind of a shock, but. Is anything really a shock with Holland? Because I would probably say that it's that it's not as much of a shock as what it at first appears to be. Why do the Dutch have this reputation, Niall? Or why do they? It's not even a reputation; it's a fact. When they get to major competitions, they seem to have the talent, but they never quite seem to be able to deliver. They're they're the Tottenham Hotspurs of international football. No, they're the England of international football. <laughs> no, England, England are the England of international football. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got the talent and we never deliver. Um, often that's the case. I think it's been a difficult period for Dutch football, hasn't it? They've always had great players in fits and starts. You think of the likes of Van Basten and Cruyff and Rijkaard. There's been loads, basically, for the Netherlands over the years. Seydorf, Van Nistelrooy, some brilliant football players. But in terms of a team unit... It's difficult for them, I think, um, as a nation, because effectively they are a small country. They're a small country that produces excellent, excellent football players. 
And it's been a bit of a fallow period for them, hasn't it, over the last 10 years or so. I don't think they did. They not qualify for the World Cup um, and they haven't qualified for too many of the recent tournaments, at least I can't remember. Um, Ever since they got to the final of the World Cup, I think in 2010, it's kind of been a bit downhill from there. The last 10, 11 years has been tough for the Dutch. So, I mean, I think it's interesting that this narrative is developing about them sort of stumbling and falling at at quite an early hurdle. But then again, you could level the same thing at England. And, you know, I think England have a a bigger wealth of or a pool of players to pick from than the Netherlands do. So certainly disappointing for them. But I think in terms of this result being a shock, Marley's right. It definitely is because the Czech Republic, you wouldn't have expected them to, to go and beat Netherlands on paper. But that Ukraine game in which the Dutch were in control and they lost control and they ended up getting it back right at the end and and sort of scraping the result, that would have been enough to maybe cause a few people to rear their heads up and go, well, hang on a sec, are this Dutch team really as impressive as they looked when they went 2-0 ahead? (laughs) So I, I think that's something to consider. Frank de Boer, I think, as well, as a manager, I mean, Crystal Palace, no goals scored, Five defeats in a row, first five games of the Premier League season. He was sacked remarkably early in the Premier League season when he was the Palace manager. And now it's another flop for him as the national team coach. So I just wonder whether he was ever the right man for the job in the first place, to be honest with you. So so certainly a surprise, but in terms of the Netherlands kind of getting this sort of stigma of them being, not bottle jobs, I don't think that's fair, but throwing it away or shooting themselves in the foot that's something they're going to look to try and stamp out pretty quickly because you know this result against the Czech Republic isn't going to do that moniker any favours at all it's a funny one the Czech Republic as you kind of said Marley because they've done they're now in the quarterfinals of the competition without actually playing particularly well in any game they've been pretty solid they've caused issues but they've not put in a what you call a performance inverted commas so far in this competition. You got Patrick Stick, who sh- sh- Patrick Schnick is it Schick? Schick. 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 Patrick Schick, who's got four goals in the tournament so far, and he's playing over in Leverkusen. Is he going to be amongst the players that potential Premier League teams are going to be looking at and going, or oh, oh, they look decent, or they could do a job, or? Is it, is it kind of like, are they in a situation where they're just greater than the sum of their parts so necessarily won't be attracting that kind of attention? Uh, to be honest, I think I think Schick's just having a good tournament. He's in form. Um, I'm not sure he's this level of player where, you know, he's not like Lewandowski in the Poland team where all you got to do is create him a chance and you know he's going to score. I think he's, he's, he's just in good form. Um, you know, he's took his header against Scotland brilliantly. Obviously, he scored from them 50 yards. He's took his other couple of goals really well as well, but I'm not entirely sure he's, you know, it's like all he's cracked up to be sort of thing. I don't think he's one of Europe's best, but he's certainly solid, um, and he's been around at this level for for quite a long time. He's been at Leverkusen, he's been at Leipzig, um, and he's scored. He's got a decent enough record, but he's not a sort of one of the the leading lights of of Europe, and you know, one of these players who can go on to be one of the best um, strikers in Europe, I don't think. But mm. he's certainly better than everyone else Czech Republic have in terms of going in and winning a game. He's he's bright. He's the one you can say, well, he might just score. In in this form, you, you can be more confident he's going to score if you can create in the chances. So the rest of Czech Republic are, are kind of just sort of solid. And Vladimir Sufal is, 
is the perfect epitome of what Czech Republic are. Like he won't really make many mistakes. He's not the more he's not amazing, but he's solid and he'll give you seven or eight out of ten every time. But it's one of those things where where's his where's his sort of level? You know, at some point he'll be exposed by the best wingers in the world and Czech Republic will be exposed by the best teams in the world when they play them. Um and Holland Holland probably would have won that game if they had eleven men on the pitch. Let's 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 get that right. But you know, as soon as you make a mistake, Czech Republic had the um the quality to take advantage of ten men. So that's kind of the thing. You've got to do everything right against them. And if you make a mistake, they they will be there to to, to have a go at you. Um, and up until now in the tournament, nobody's um nobody's been more sort of prepared to do that than Czech Republic because they had the the chance against Scotland, they were professional, they narrowed defeat against England, took the lead against Croatia as well, um, before getting pegged back. And then you've got the uh, the first knockout game where they just waited for their opportunity and eventually took it. There is an interesting story in the Times today linking Stick with a move to Chelsea and Arsenal. So he could be potentially one of those signings that shines in the Euros, then goes on to be a flopper a Big English club, potentially. Yeah, it does. It feels like an Arsenal signing, doesn't it? Um, let's yeah. move on. We're going to try and rattle through these games from the weekend. I want to talk about Denmark four, Wales nil next, and they've gone out with a bit of a whimper, Wales Nile. But should they just be proud? I mean, we talked last week about how Scotland should be proud of getting to the European Championships, but should Wales be proud of getting to the knockout stages? Should that be enough for this squad? Yeah, I think it should. But I also think it speaks volumes that, you know, the Welsh supporters are a bit gutted. They didn't make a quarterfinal of the Euros. Mm. I mean, that says a lot about how far they've come, particularly in the last 10 years. And I spoke a minute ago about the Netherlands and about how the 10 years they've had begun with a World Cup final appearance and it's kind of slowly gone downhill um, and tailed off. Well, for Wales, it's almost the opposite. In the last six years or so, they've absolutely soared in the international scene. Obviously, Euro 2016 was huge for them getting to a, a semi-final. They beat Belgium in Euro 2016, who have gone on to become the best team in the world, according to the FIFA rankings. Um, and they, you know, they they played well this tournament as well. They got themselves through to the last 16. I mean, 4-0 is an interesting scoreline. I don't think it was quite right in terms of a scoreline that suited the game. I do think 4-0 flat as Denmark. But um, yeah, they should be proud of the way they got to uh, another knockout stage of a tournament when really Wales aren't the sort of side that should be qualifying for the Euros. Mm. So, you know, fair play to them. And I think that there are a few sort of kind of annoyed Wales fans and players as well. I think Chris Gunter, who's their record appearance maker for Wales, has come out in the press and criticised what he's called a joke of a tournament because Wales have had to go to Rome, Baku. Their last 16 game was in Amsterdam. Whereas, you know, if you look just across the Seven Bridge and into England, all of their games so far have been at Wembley. And so will the one on Tuesday against Germany. So Chris Gunter wasn't particularly happy with the amount of travelling. He said it was unfair. He didn't think the Euros was constructed particularly well logistically. There's obviously going to be talks and concerns because of the fact we're still in the midst of a pandemic and therefore should travel really have been going on anyway. There are always going to be people that say that. But certainly he was pretty irked at the fact that, you know, his 
teammates and he had had to do so much travelling over the course of the two weeks of the tournament. Um, but yeah, I think they should be proud. They did go out with a bit of a whimper, like you say. I think they'd be disappointed with how they performed. Um, they did have a couple of good chances against Denmark, which they didn't take. But yeah, getting out of the group stages and the fact that they were disappointed collectively, both as a, a nation and as players, that they didn't get to a quarter-final of the Euros. I think that's a, I think that's a telling sign of the way Welsh football has progressed in the last five or six years. So fair play to them. And unfortunately for them, their journey ends here, but I'm sure they'll be back. I agree with the multi-location Euros actually not really working. I don't think it's worked as a concept. I think it's lacked that. I like the fact that when you have a tournament that's based in one nation, you get kind of a sense of that nation's culture coming through into the tournament. I'm thinking of tournaments like France 98 or Italia 90. I don't think that's happened this time, but also... That Denmark-Wales game is the perfect example of a partisan crowd that hugely benefits one team because there are a load of Denmark fans in that stadium, it being just over the border in the um, in Amsterdam. So I think it, it, it's kind of created a little bit of... A, and I know you get, you'll get partisan crowds wherever the tournament's held, but it, doesn't, it does feel like it's upset the balance a little bit. Yeah, well, Germans can't travel to Wembley on Tuesday. I think mm. that their advice is don't go to England. Which so is perfectly fair and exactly yeah, how it should be. <laughs> you're basically going to have 20,000 England fans inside Wembley. You'll get the occasional German in there. Of course you will. But effectively, it's an interesting concept. I actually quite like the concept of playing it in different cities around Europe. I think that's, you know, I think that's really interesting. Um, and it's almost an experiment, isn't it? But I think the timing of it with it, you know, not being full stadiums and, and as you say, not really allowing the culture to bleed through. Um, you know, I think that that has had an adverse effect on the tournament. I don't think on the quality of the football, but it doesn't feel like a, a big tournament. It doesn't feel the same way as the Euros did in France in 2016, for example, where you've got, you know, the Parc de France in France is massively different to Marseille in the south of France, you know. Um, and Lyon have got a, a lovely stadium and it's just it's just nice. So imagine if the Euros was purely in England. You could see games at St. James's Park and at Ellen Road and at Old Trafford and at the Etihad and places like that. Whereas actually, you know, we're just seeing Wembley over and over again. And I think that that is, is true because every tournament kind of has its own hallmarks of uh, 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 and what makes it what it is. You know, the Vuvuzelas in South Africa... Uh, and obviously Euro 96, you'll remember well, Jim, with, you know, the, the summer with with the sort of the, even the music and the culture that went with mm. it and the sort of vibe around England in that summer as well. I think that this has definitely got a different feel in terms of the tournament. Um, I don't think the football's particularly suffered. I think we've seen some good games. And I think players now are quite seasoned to travelling. But definitely, I think as a concept in terms of, of playing it in different countries and different stadiums, I like the idea to begin with. I'm not so sure I do now. Back to the game at the weekend. How about Denmark then, Mali? They've really grown into this tournament, obviously got off to the start it got off to, and that was understandably going to shake them in the early stages. But they've really gathered pace. They've scored four goals in their last two matches now. Are Denmark that good going forward? Because this is potentially, if England get past Germany tomorrow night, Denmark are the highest ranked team they can meet on the way to the final. So how good are Denmark? (sighs) I don't. They're, they're good, but they're not. I don't think they're they're amazing. I think they've had, you know, the the group would have been a lot more comfortable had what happened not happened. You know, with Eriksson in the first game against Finland, I think they would have won that under normal circumstances, and they'd have got through the group with six points, um, mm. and you know maybe you know might have still lost to uh, to Belgium, for example. But they'd have still beaten Russia. I, I would have thought, but 
Um, yeah, so the, then they've got what is probably the easiest draw in the in the last 16. Wales, number one in terms of their sort of quality, weren't the best um, team to make the last 16. And number two, they'd travel to Baku, um, no fans, all the rest of it. And Denmark were coming into this game off three games in Copenhagen. So as we were talking about before, you know, the, the two, you know, Gunter was... It definitely seemed like sour grapes from Chris Gunter, but at the minute, at the the sort of heart of what he was saying, there's definitely some sort of uh, point he's got there. Um, so you're looking at that and saying, well, you know, who was set up to go and win that game? And it was only it was only Denmark, wasn't wasn't it? So, you know, in Ajax, uh, in Ajax's stadium where Eriksson used to play, partisan crowd, not that much uh, traveling for the Danes to do, all the rest of it. It was always going to be a sort of game that looked in the balance but always slightly favoured Denmark. So they were they were quite good. They were they were okay. Um well they were impressive but it, it's it was Wales that Wales shot themselves in the foot. They defended awfully. So it's hard to sort of judge where Denmark are. Um they were better against Russia, I thought. I thought the the, the game against Russia they, they really put Russia away. But again you can you can hold questions over over how good Russia are, um, because they've not been anywhere near you know major tournaments really in terms of competitiveness in the last 10 12 years so i'm still not really sure where denmark are but i think they're doing sort of a professional job they're beating the teams that they're meant to beat um and something's clicked for them um probably using the the emotional strength they've got from from ericsson's incident to to sort of spur them on in this tournament and even though it's a, a sad thing that they'd have all rather not gone through it's prob- I think it has probably helped them a little bit. It's the kind of thing that can really galvanise a team, isn't it? And if they do go deep into the competition, then obviously there's a narrative the press got on board with and the fans get on board with about this fairy tale tournament. So it's one of those things that makes it very difficult to predict how they're going to perform going on. I think for Wales, they're at a really interesting point as well. And we'll move on uh, without discussing that. But I think they've got this really young team with a lot of good youthful players but then you've got key players like Aaron Ramsey and Joe Allen and Gareth Bale reaching the end of their international careers and we're expecting an announcement about Gareth Bale and what he does internationally to come maybe immediately after the Euros the expectation is he might have played his last game for Wales so Belgium won Portugal nil is the game we're going to go to next which was last night's football Ronaldo going home with his Portugal teammates I was looking at this team and I was looking at this Belgium team and thinking the talent that they've got at the moment, and they are world number one, but if they're going to win a tournament, if they're going to win a trophy, this feels like when they've got to do it because players like De Bruyne and players like Lukaku, they're not going to be there forever and they haven't got that crop of youngsters coming through. So is it really a case of now or never for Belgium, Nile? And is that going to be enough to motivate them to potentially go on and compete right the way to the final for this? I think so. I think you're right, Jim, in terms of this being the crop of players that is the best that Belgium have ever produced. If you look at their top 10 appearance makers, um, Vertonghen, Witzel, Alderweireld, Hazard, Mertens, Lukaku are the top six. And then Company mm. and Thibaut Courtois are also in the top 10. So you've got eight of the top 10 appearance makers in uh, Belgian football history are all players that are still playing, basically, or at least only recently retired, like in Vincent Company's case. So, you know, you do look at this crop and you think, well, this is 
the group of players that does need to achieve something if that ever is to be the case. Much like the Netherlands, Belgium are a small nation, all things considered. Their top two goal scorers in international football are, are Lukaku and Hazard. Two players that, as as mentioned previously, are still playing. So, you know, they finished third in the World Cup in 2018, which I think for a nation like Belgium is a remarkable achievement. Um, they won the Olympic Games, I think, as well. They won a gold medal in the Olympic football. I'm not sure what year that was. I imagine I think that was 2016 Olympics in um, in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Um, but certainly in terms of trying to win something and be successful, it has to be now. It has to be this Euros, Jim. I, I agree with you because I think it would be unlikely for, mm. you know, the aging players, once they get over the other side of 30, for them to then last another four years or another two years between Euros and World Cups. That's a difficult thing to do because I think that when you do reach your 30s, those years are almost seen as the decline of your career or the twilight of your career, to use a, a more pleasant term. So yeah, I think if they are going to win something, probably now it is their best opportunity. The Netherlands are out, the holders, Portugal are out, England or Germany, one of which will be out come Wednesday morning or Tuesday night. So, you know, there's plenty of opportunity there. And, you know, in a 1v1 game against France, you'd expect France to be the better and stronger team, but you wouldn't be adverse to backing Belgium to beat them in a, in a sort of a one-on-one game. So... Definitely a great opportunity for them. However, I think it speaks volumes about the quality of players that they've produced in the last five or six years or even beyond that to suggest that we're talking about Belgium, a small nation like them, as possible tournament winners. You know, it's it's exceptional. It's absolutely brilliant. Mm. They're really enjoying a golden generation and, uh, um, you know, fair play to them um, for for doing as well as they have done. I mean, finishing third in the World Cup, I think, is an excellent achievement. But yeah, certainly, if they're going to capitalise, it has to be now. Um, You you look at some of the famous teams of the past, I think Hungary, back in the early days of international football, were almost a legendary side on the international stage. So nations do go through these periods, but they're very few and far between. So, you know, Belgium will be looking at this and thinking, right, this is a great opportunity for us. But if they don't win the tournament, I don't think we can look at them and say that they've been an, an abject failure. They've been the best team in the world in the FIFA rankings for a number of years now. They've got excellent players. They consistently perform and consistently win matches. They've knocked the holders out Portugal this weekend. Um, I think they're enjoying a great spell and a great time of it internationally. So you have to kind of take things in context and go, well, actually, on the whole, if you take a step back and zoom out, they've done really, really well, regardless of how they go in this tournament. Their potential to continue in the tournament was hampered slightly by Kevin De Bruyne's injury. They didn't look like the same team after he went off after one of a few tasty challenges from Portugal. He's got an ankle injury. The concern is that might have ruled him out for the rest of the tournament. And obviously, that is also concerning for Manchester City fans ahead of next season. As for Portugal, though, I was a bit disappointed Marley, I, by what they offered in that game. They seem to have a lot of chances in the second half, particularly after the absence of Kevin De Bruyne. Joel Felix got some absolute pelters from Roy Keane on TV afterwards, getting a lot of criticism for wasting chances. But I thought Bruno Fernandes, who came off the bench as well, just didn't really have the same impact that he has for Manchester United. And that's the player we've come to expect when Bruno Fernandes is on the pitch. He's in the centre of the park. He's pulling the strings. Why can't he do it for Portugal when he can do it for Manchester United? Uh, I think it's just because Bruno's been the main man pretty much everywhere in his career so far. Um, You know, when he was at Sporting, he was their main player. Everything went through him. 
he was captain, he was on free kicks, penalties, all the playmaking went through him. Pretty much every attack did, he was one of the top scorers and all the rest of it. And it's exactly the same at Man United. Um, you know, he's he, he's the he's the catalyst. He's he's the one who inspires the team. Um, and I think when you go into a Portugal mm. side, and you look alongside you, and you've got Ronaldo and Jota and Bernardo Silva and João Felix on the bench, who can't can't even get in the starting lineup. It's completely, it's just a different sort of role he has to play. Um, and I think as well. The the sort of the things Portugal have done in the last few years, winning the Euros, for example, has been a sort of taken their sort of ego to another level. So like it's almost like they're like fully believing that they're gonna go far and therefore they don't need to play as much of it as as a team as much, if mm. that makes sense. Least deserving so think... European champions of all time, by the way, Portugal. <laughs> Was it one, oh. one, wasn't it one game they won in ninety minutes or something during the Last Euros in 2016. 16. Yeah. I Didn't think, deserve yeah, it at all. I think they drew all their uh, the group games and got through with three points, if I remember right. Yeah, like, ridiculous. Wrong, but... Ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Yeah, but as for Bruno, man, I mean, he's just, when he, when he's in the team or when he gets a game or comes off the bench or starts or whatever he does, it's just, it's just not the same role. He's just not used to you know things bypassing him and him having to go and get involved in moves rather than mm. moves come through him and it's just it's a it's a lot different and you you know over the space of a tournament format where you get four games you know it's hard to to get to grips with that and find your place in the team whereas someone like Renato Sanchez who, who basically took his place is more of a a same type of player for his club uh, Lille than he is with Port than he, he is at Portugal as well, so he's a you know part of a, a team trying to do something and he's uh, almost like a sort of one of the better players but not the main man. So he has to go and impose himself on games every every week. He has to go and get involved in that midfield battle and and scrap for things and and show his talent in there. Whereas Bruno's a bit more casual and used to things coming to him. So he's about to. He's, he goes and finds space for Man United, knowing that the ball will come to him. But if, if compare that to Renato Sanchez, he's like, I've got to go and get that ball. I've got to go and tackle someone and dribble past someone in midfield and then create space for someone mm. else. And I just think that's that's a huge role difference in terms of, of Bruno Fernandes. And I think it's one he, he didn't look used to. Um, and that's probably shown his, his performances. Final game to take a quick look at is Italy, who beat Austria 2-1. Incidentally, my ability to pick terrible games in the Euros is pretty outstanding. Every time I decide I'm going to sit down and watch a game properly, it is rubbish. And that happened with this game. I sat down and watched it, sat all the way through the 0-0. It got to extra time, went, ah, can't be bothered with this. I'm going to watch something else. Three goals in extra time. (laughs) Absolutely perfect. I mean, Italy went into this game... As tournament went into the tournament as many people's favourites, actually. They were kind of labelled a dark horse as much as Italy can be a dark horse. But having gone through the group stages, they've looked really impressive. Will this result have tempered those expectations slightly, Niall? Because with the utmost respect to Austria, they're not one of the European elites. No, they're not. And I'll actually disagree with you. I think that... Not many people picked Italy as tournament favourites until... The, After the group stages, in, I think. Until the first game of the tournament, that Friday night, the first game of the Euros, where they absolutely demolished Turkey, who were kind of 
actually quite a fair few people's dark horses for the tournament, Turkey, and Italy absolutely blasted them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was the turning point where a lot of people went, oh, hang on a sec. This is a slightly different Italian style than what we're used to. We're used to seeing the Italians be slow, dictate possession, the tempo of the game, have that player in the pivot in the middle, spraying passes left and right, getting crosses into the box. They still have that and they still do that, but they do it with this really intense press that they've been really sort of effectively implementing throughout the tournament. And I think that Italy look fitter than any of the other teams in the tournament. And Mm. even if you compare it to England, for instance, the game against Scotland, England just looked tired, they looked jaded, they looked poor. And I haven't seen that from Italy. And I watched mainly the second half of the game and extra time. I watched it with my dad, actually. And I turned to my dad and I said, Austria look knackered here. They're going to run out of steam. They defended very, very well, in all fairness to Austria. Um, the, the two centre-halves, I thought, were excellent for the majority of the game. But they just looked like they were running on fumes by the end. And Italy just still had that extra bit of zip about them. They kept probing, they kept pressing. And what was it, six minutes into extra time, they found the breakthrough um, and ended up winning the game pretty easily in the end in extra time. There was obviously a late header from Austria um, in the dying moments there. But certainly in terms of what we saw against Austria, I think that will encourage any any side that does come up against Italy that they aren't unbreakable, that they aren't unbeatable. Obviously, they've got this amazing record of over a thousand minutes without conceding a goal. That's gone now. Austria did have their opportunities. They did have their chances. And it just shows that Italy aren't unbreachable. And Austria, as you say, aren't one of the European heavyweights. So that will give other sides who are of a better quality than Austria confidence that when they do come up against Italy, that they have a chance to beat them. And I think that everyone knows how good the Italians are defensively. It's kind of been a cliche over the years that the Italians are rock solid at the back and they'll go and pick you off and win 1-0 or 2-1 or whatever. But certainly, I think that... The Italy we've seen in this tournament under Mancini has been slightly different to that. But, I mean, I don't think any side in this tournament is is undefeatable, unbreachable. I think this is what makes this Euros quite exciting. Certainly, I can understand after the group stages why people were plumping for Italy and saying that they're going to be the, the favourites to win it and they're the ones to beat. Well, Austria came pretty close in the end. Um, mm. But still, they're a great side, Italy, and um, they're definitely going to be a tough match for whoever they come up against next. I feel like I should say at this point that there is one person that picked Italy to go deep in this conversation, into the, in this competition, and picked the Czech Republic to get to the quarterfinals. Um, and I must put my hand up and admit that person is me. I'd like to take full plaudits for that <laughs> particular bit of punditry because I don't get many things like that right. And the only reason they're both going out in the next yeah, round. Yeah, well, I did say they, the, the Czech Republic would go out in the quarters, but um, I take full. Well, I must give credit to the Gavin Hamilton's Euro Road Trip podcast, which we made for Sports Social, which gave me all that knowledge and is still available via the Sports Social Podcast Network. Go and listen to that. Recently voted as one of the best podcasts of Euro 2020 by Metro Newspaper as well. So go and have a listen to that. Did you vote for that as well? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to do with me, that one. Uh, Gavin Hamilton's Euro's Road Trip. Go and find it. Go and have a listen. Uh, Very finally on this one, before we move on to tonight's game, is Marco Inaltovic, Marley, who... I kind of. Yeah, oh, well, I was hoping you'd. I was hoping you'd say about Anovic. Go on. Well, I was going to say about Anovic. He was. Um, it was quite impressive in this game. I thought, and he's been linked with a move back to my club, West Ham, after he absolutely did us over and went over to China, and he's not played a huge amount over in China either. He's thirty-two now, but 
looking at him playing against the Italians, I thought he can do a job in the Premier League. Uh, can he? I don't know. I'm not sure. I, th- I, th- I think you get the same Marco Aronautovic that you got that you got last time. Um, if he fancies it, he can look really good. But nine nine weeks out of ten, he, he looks like he'd rather be anywhere else. Um, and he'd sort of mope around, not put pressure on defenders, just sort of wait for things to happen towards him. Um, I think you're seeing him. I mean, he impressed you, Jim, obviously, but I think that's the fact that it's a a really big game, like probably the biggest game in in the last 20 years for Austria, possibly in their lifetime, uh, in terms of what it would mean if they'd managed to beat Italy. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would go for anyone else, <laughs> to be honest. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be looking at him, but. Um, he did score the goal that was that was ruled offside, um, and he did cause a bit of an issue. He had the chance where he he got he got in behind. I think it was Benucci, wasn't it? And he uh, he had the shot which which went wide or over. I can't remember what it was now, but he fluffed his lines anyway. So it was um, he was all right, but I I just wouldn't be convinced with him every week. I feel like he's he's just one of them players you can't rely on. And I think if you're playing two games a week. As West Ham are going to, at least in the start of of next season, um, you've got to you've got to have someone slightly more reliable. But I think my favourite thing he did was um, was when he scored that um, scored the offside goal. He ran over, giving it the shush sign to all the Italy fans. And he was apparently in January. He was really close to signing for Bologna on loan um, for the season to get prepared for the Euros. So if Bologna still wanted him and then he's running around shushing all the Italian fans, I don't know if he's, again, it's just, a, it's, 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 a, it's example of, you know, example 1,295 of Marco Anatovic being thick, um, and not, not really <laughs> thinking about his future. Like he's just hugely self-destructive. I yeah. think, I think that's kind of the problem with him. He's got to got that gene. I'll tell you what he is. He's a and there isn't too many of them in football anymore. It is quite amusing watching him go about his business. When he scored that, was it a header he scored or a volley off the underside of the crossbar? It was a good goal. And then the VAR took an eternity to get it called off, by the way. English VAR. What was going on there? Yeah. Stuart Atwell. Worst execution oh, of VAR. And wasn't no it surprise, it was from Premier League officials. And it was not even close. Mm. It was a yard and a half offside. It was two yards offside. It was stupid. Um, and the complaining uh, from Arnautovic after that uh, was quite funny. And he is a character, um, as much as I kind of had a bit of a dig at him there he is a character and he is entertaining and interesting to watch and when you do watch Austria you're pretty much always looking out for Marco Arnautovic so if he did return to the Premier League I don't think it would be one of those returns that lasts particularly long but I'm like Marley I can't really see it happening in the sense that I don't think he's going to come back and make an impact not at his age but you know what West Ham are like Jim they love a little romantic return don't they so um, maybe there is a little bit there in terms of a possibility of him coming back to the Hammers. Always sensible to throw good money after bad. That is the West Ham transfer strategy. Right, we're going to talk about tonight's games next. We'll do it on Football Social Daily after this. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Two games tonight and of course the focus is on England versus Germany tomorrow night. There'll be a podcast tomorrow looking at that game and if you fancy a bet, Boyle Sports are offering their £10 no-lose bet on that game and every England game during the European Championships. It might be the last opportunity to take advantage of it. So put 10 quid on any market during the England game. If it loses, you get your stake back as a free bet. If it wins, obviously you get the money from the bet. All the info you need is online at boylesports.com or you can get the Boyle Sports betting app. T's and C's apply. 
It is 18 plus, obviously. Bet responsibly and be gambleaware.co.uk. Right, let's talk about Croatia versus Spain. That's one of two games tonight. Have you seen enough from Croatia, Mali, in this tournament? Or enough from Spain, for that matter, to convince that they could cause a potential upset? Croatia causing the upset. I think we can still count Spain as the favourites in this one. Yeah, definitely. They, they'll probably start as favourites, but... I mean, there's two teams where the, it's kind of hard to see where they are because Spain have have made you know they've made it look like brain brain uh, surgery this this tournament. They've they've had everything except the, the sort of killer punch and they've made everything complicated for themselves by you know missing chances and and putting pressure on themselves. But they did come through the Slovakia game um, eventually. But you know after a missed penalty and a few missed chances early doors they. They relied on a goalkeeper howler from none other than Newcastle's goalkeeper. Thank you, Martin, um, for, for slapping one into his own net. Um, and then, you know, then the, then the sort of pressure was off and the floodgates were opened a little bit. So, mm. but once you get to the knockout stages and those chances start not going in, you're thinking, you know, are they gonna panic? Are they gonna? You know, let the let the occasion get to them a little bit more because it's not just a group stage game where you might be able to get away with the draw and get through if other results go your way. You know, it's it's something where Croatia, are, that Croatia might be prepared for that. They know they're probably going to have twenty five thirty percent possession of the of the ball, so it's about coming up with a plan for them to to attack Spain where they can uh, when they do have the ball because Spain are going to dominate it. They're probably going to miss chances and chance. It's a chance for for Croatia to to sort of prove that they are still where they were two or three years ago. I think when we look at Spain, we think of the team of two thousand and eight and ten and twelve, Iniesta and Xavi. But then I guess the truth is now that this Spain team just don't have that level of quality. They're not as good as the legendary Spanish teams of the past. No, they're not. And much like what I was saying about Belgium earlier, it's very much, you know, when you do have great players, you need to capitalise on that. And Spain did in 08, 10, 12, like you say, they were the, the best team in the world for that four team for that four year period. And there was no real arguments about that. Like you say, Xavi, Iniesta, David Villa up front, um, Busquets, Piquet, Puyol. I mean, look at the names you're reeling off. It's basically a Barcelona core. But we don't really have that anymore, do we? I mean, in terms of Barcelona and, and the Spanish players coming through. I mean, you think of, I don't know, a player like maybe Sergi Roberto, who's made hundreds of appearances for Barcelona, doesn't even get into the Spain squad mm. for, you know, this tournament so you have to suggest that yeah the quality isn't quite as good it doesn't mean the players aren't good players I mean because Xavi and Iniesta uh, some of the best players I've ever seen in the you know the 20 odd years that I've been watching football I mean it's hard to come close to those two in terms of midfield players and the impact they had on games and for their club side as well as their national team so yeah I think it's a fair comment to make that Spain do lack the same quality I mean you look at the strikers is Morata as good as David Villa was? I don't know. Is he as good as Fernando Torres was in his pop? You don't know. I think, I think most people know. Surely, I mean, it, it doesn't compare. That's the problem, isn't that, it? That's what I mean. I'm Spanish trying to be. Squad. I'm trying to be nice, basically. I don't. I don't yeah. want to be too rude. But I mean, even Fernando Torres in his heyday, I think was a, was probably a better choice up front. But Spain don't have mm. that. They don't have that luxury at the moment. I'm sure their time will come again. Some really exciting young players, particularly at Barcelona, that are coming through. So I do think that that, that maybe Spain will flourish at some point and they'll come again. But 
But much like before 2008, when they won the Euros and when they won the World Cup in 2010, before that, Spain weren't really much. They were always a good team, but they were never really seen as this footballing heavyweight, this footballing superpower. And they've kind of turned themselves into that because of the success they had in that four-year spell. So now the bar has been set for the Spanish the bar has been set that they need to go deep into tournaments. And unfortunately for them, they don't have the quality and they don't have the players that they did have. But um, I think that that's something that they're just going to have to work on. They've got tournament experience and that is something that will kind of flow through over the years. The fact that, you know, these squads have been built on sides that have gone the distance in tournaments on a couple of occasions. So I think Spain will come again. They'll come good again. I just don't think this is their year. They failed to get to the last eight in their last three major tournaments, Spain. Um, Croatia without even Perisic tonight, Mali. Is that going to make much of a difference to them? Will that be a real miss? I've got to say, I quite fancy Croatia for this one. I think we might see an upset. Yeah, I think Perisic is, you know, he's probably not the player he was a couple of years ago, but he's certainly still very important for for uh, Croatia. He's one of them sort of players you can count on in big games. He's had a lot of experience. Um, and when they needed him in the group stage, he popped up with a couple of goals to uh, to sort of help him through that group stage where it looked a bit ropey at times. I think he scored the equaliser against um, uh, against Czech Republic, didn't he? And then he scored the, one of the goals against Scotland as well. So he's uh, he's a top player for them. He's still very very important to how they way they play, but he'll be a bit of a miss. Um, they've still got quality to come in, but it's the experience you need at this this stage of the tournament, I think. But I certainly wouldn't cr- uh, count Croatia out just because of the fact that Spain have. Have been so sort of flat, uh, flattering to deceive, sort of thing, uh, so far this tournament. So, I think it's an interesting one. I think Spain is starting as like heavy favourites with like the odds and stuff, but I can't really, I can't really see why they're that heavy because I don't think this is beyond the realms of possibilities for Croatia. I think it'll be an interesting game. Maybe less interesting will be France versus Switzerland, but I mean France are, have been tournament favourites from the off, really. But I guess one of the biggest dangerous for them going into this Nile is that they underestimate the Swiss who are no pushovers yeah Switzerland are an interesting team because they always seem to qualify for major tournaments um it seems like they're always there and you know if you think about Europe as a nation obviously as a continent sorry everyone's qualifying via UEFA and let's just take the Euros to one side and think about the World Cup if you think about teams that qualify for the World Cup from Europe you're always thinking Italy France Germany England etc etc but Switzerland are always there. So they can't be a bad side and they do have a, a mm. decent group of players. And this has been the case for ages now for Switzerland. Um, it, it's not a derby and not a rivalry, I wouldn't say, but they are two countries that sort of neighbour each other, France and Switzerland. So maybe there is a little bit in this. Um, but certainly France, I think they've left a little bit to be desired. I'm not saying that they're a bad team by any stretch of the imagination. I still think they're the best team in the tournament, but it's very much efficiency with France. Um, you sometimes wonder how anyone's going to score past them and break them down. Um, but you'd also like them to see a little bit more effective at the other end of the pitch, considering they've got Mbappe and Griezmann and you know players like Pogba who can chip in with goals as well. They've got you know Benzema too, excellent players at the top end of the pitch. But similarly to England, you know Czech Republic have scored more goals than England, and look at England's forward players. You'd expect them to be finding the back of the net on a regular basis. Hasn't quite been that way. I still think France are the the favourites. I still think like they've got another gear to go into. I still think they'll beat Switzerland. But um, certainly, like you say, Switzerland shouldn't be written off. Much like we saw the Czech Republic beat the Netherlands on paper, everyone's picking the Netherlands. 
you never know. We've already seen the holders be dumped out. We've already seen the Netherlands be knocked out. So, like I said earlier, one of Germany and England are going to be out by the time Tuesday night comes around. So, I mean, this Euros has been peculiar. Strange things have happened both on and off the pitch in different ways. So, if Switzerland do win, it would be a huge surprise. But international football is often like that. Sometimes you do get results that you don't expect. It does feel like France, as Nile very well put, haven't quite got into their top gears yet, Marley. But now they get into the knockout stages, it does feel like that difficult group might help them slightly, doesn't it? Because they, unlike England, for example, and England have kind of limped through the group stages against not great opposition, and now they face Germany without any real test previously. France are going into this having had some tough games and now potentially their journey through the knockout stages looks slightly easier. So, I mean, will that be a benefit to them or will that be a negative in that they might go into these games having um, put more effort, I mean, feeling with tighter legs because they've had to put more into the previous games? Uh, that's, that's the test, isn't it? You know, you've you've got up for the three, um, the three games in the group stage and they, they looked sort of complacent against Hungary you know they they were almost shocked there they needed to come from behind and that goal going in against them was like a um like a jolt for them and the, the sort of reminder that this wasn't you know all all gonna go their way so you're um you're hoping that they, that they learn from that if if you're a France fan because you know it's it's the first game where they're clear favorites since that Hungary game and it's like okay you've got to learn from that and you've got to not be complacent because that's the only thing that's the only way mm. Switzerland have got a chance to tonight or when when do they play tonight it is tonight isn't it yeah um yeah so yeah th- that's the only hope they've got because Switzerland are nowhere near good enough to to lay a glove on France if everyone's plays at the same level if everyone gives 100% France win that game 4-5-0 easily but it's tournament football you know anything can anything can happen they've got um They've got a few injuries, mostly to squad players, so the starting eleven shouldn't be affected that much. But you know, if if you're Switzerland, you're chucking everything at this. You're chucking at the kitchen sink at them because you know you've you're never going to have this chance again. And that's what I always think, especially when you get to the knockout stages. Don't just be happy to lose. Just be and say, oh, you know, we got to the knockout stages and got beat by France, who are one of the best teams in the world. Just go for them. Like they might have a soft belly. We don't know yet. Because Hungary, Hungary almost did it, and Switzerland will probably be thinking we're we're better than Hungary. I think Hungary are better than Switzerland, to be honest. But they've got to think like that, and they've got to think positive and think, you know, if we can catch them off guard, a little bit cold, you know, we're not Portugal, we're not Germany, so they might be taking us a little bit lighter, and they've got to go and do that. But whether they can actually do that is another thing. There's five or six players potentially out for France, which can have a big impact on these relatively small Euro squads, even though they're bigger squads than we've seen in previous tournaments. So that could have an impact on this game. But as for the Swiss, is it all about Shakiri Niall? We saw him basically winning the game on his own against Turkey. Is he the main danger man, do you think, the uh, the French will be looking out for? Um probably probably yeah i mean it's kind of says something about the quality of the team doesn't it (laughs) i suppose yeah but it's like i say they always seem to qualify for for major tournaments i mean i think they've qualified for every world cup since 2006 they've definitely qualified for the last few euros because i think they were the host nation for one of them um in recent memory so they've certainly established themselves as a as a side that always tend to be there i mean they've got some reasonably 
good players, but no one that really stands out as if to say, oh, you know, he's the one to watch out for. And I think Jordan Shakiri. I mean, he, he he doesn't get on the pitch for Liverpool. And mm. I don't even think he'll be at Liverpool next season by the, by the sounds of it. So, you know, if we're talking that a Liverpool sort of bench warmer is their best player, then no, I don't think France really have too much to worry about. But certainly Shakiri, what is it, 94 caps and 25 goals. Easily the highest goal scorer in the Switzerland squad. I mean, I think Seferovic is—is is, is that his name? The Benfica striker is—is—is yeah. is, is another one who's probably one to watch out for. Uh, I'm not sure what his international goal records like, but but certainly in terms of the forward players, it would be those two for me: Shakiri and Seferovic. But I don't think that France will be planning their game plan around stopping Jerd and Shakiri. Mm. I think it'd be for them. It would be more: how can we plot our route to goal? Especially when you got Kante in your midfield as well. <laughs> Yeah. You just think yeah. N'Golo will probably sort that problem himself and then <laughs> we'll go from there. We'll just let the rest of our midfield pass around everybody in the Switzerland midfield and we'll win 4-0. So we'll see. We're going to be talking about the future of one of Shakiri's teammates next as we look at some of the rumours that are doing the rounds in terms of transfers this summer. We'll do the rumour wrap next on Football Social Daily. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Final bit of today's podcast. We're going to look at some of the transfer rumours on the back pages of the papers and in the foreign press. And we're going to start with Manchester City, who apparently are already giving up on Tottenham's Harry Kane and turning their attentions instead to Barcelona and French forward Antoine Griezmann. Um, in- Stop laughing at my pronunciation. <laughs> I'm not. I'm laughing at the story. Your pronunciation was okay. perfect. I was just is laughing that, at the story. That's not how you say his first name, though, is it? Antoine, is it? Antoine, yeah. Antoine, well, that's close enough anyway. Um, Okay, so Griezmann, better fit fit for Manchester City than Kane. I saw this story and went, that kind of makes sense. Younger, fitter, probably cheaper, fits the system better. I quite like Griezmann as a potential signing for City. Do you think he'd work there, Marley? And does that make sense as a story? I mean, I guess Noel's laughing at it because he thinks not. (laughs) Well, Griezmann's older than Kane by three years. Um, Oh, is he? I thought he was three years younger. I got it the wrong way around. Yeah, you've got it the wrong way around. So Kane's 27, I think, or 28. Forget uh, everything I said. Disregard everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Griezmann's Griezmann's 30. Um, This makes no sense to me. I think this is uh, paper talk, um, if I'm honest. I think uh, I've heard the other day from another publication that City are going to wait until after the Euros and then properly test um, the waters in terms of signing Kane. Um, I'm inclined to believe that more. It makes more sense um, to go and get a, a striker like Kane rather than Griezmann. I think Griezmann's a quality player, but I've never understood where his best position is in his best system uh, to get the to get the most out of him. I'm probably saying that France France do it better than any club he's been at in the last five or six years. I think because he sort of plays as a almost like a free role um, in his it like sort of floating around behind the strikers. And I'm thinking Man City don't play that way. I think Man City play with the, the front three more often than not. Um, he, he's not really a winger. He, so, yeah, I'm just thinking for the money you've, you'd have to spend on him and the wages you'd have to outlay for a 30-year-old striker who might not, you know, you might get his best years for maybe two years if you're lucky, maybe three. Um, I just don't think it makes any sense. So I'm thinking it's it's... It's almost like a checkbox if you're a if you're a journalist. You're saying, is he fully settled at Barcelona? Possibly not. Does his club have um, financial difficulties? Yes. So there's two boxes ticked. Are Man City and the 
they're running for a striker. Do they need a striker? Yes, that's another box ticked. Okay, write the article. And it's like, that's it. That's all I get from, from this is it's just uh, column inches being filled and SEO being uh, hit with Griezmann and Man City and getting your uh, your articles to pop up on the front page of Google. I did see this and wondered whether potentially, because depending on what you believe, there have been suggestions that the conversations between Man City and Spurs have already begun in terms of negotiations. And I was thinking that maybe this could be a bit of tactical play on Manchester City's part. Because there aren't going to be that many suitors for Harry Kane. Because there aren't that many teams that can afford him. So if Manchester City are going, oh, we're kind of looking elsewhere, maybe it helps their hand in terms of negotiations. I mean, it seems inconceivable that Harry Kane could stay at Spurs, doesn't it? Niall, after all this talk of him leaving. I've seen some, you know, on social media, when speculation starts with a player being linked with another club, you see these mock-ups that graphics designers do with the player wearing the kit of the potential yeah. club that they could be going to. I've seen a few Nothing of those. blue suits him. Harry Kane <laughs> in a Manchester City shirt looks weird. I'll be <laughs> honest, it does look weird. Um, I think that him staying at Spurs isn't inconceivable just purely because Daniel Levy is so stubborn and he knows exactly what his plan is with Harry Kane by the sounds of it. Harry Kane is under contract at Tottenham Hotspur and it feels like a bit of a tussle between Kane in terms of what he wants personally for his career and Daniel Levy and what he wants for Tottenham Hotspur and those two things don't necessarily co-align and I think that that's the problem that we might see here. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast about Wilfred Zaha. Wilfred Zaha was, according to some Arsenal fans, priced out of a priced out of a move and sort of imprisoned by Crystal Palace because they didn't let him go to Arsenal. Arsenal didn't want to pay eighty million for Wilfred Zaha, understandably so. Manchester City probably don't want to pay one hundred and fifty million for Harry Kane understandably so because there are question marks over his injury record and whatnot so I think that this idea of players who are under contract being imprisoned and and kind of shackled from having a move away because of their personal preferences uh, don't particularly you know align with that of the club that they play for I think it's an interesting debate to be had to be honest with you because Daniel Levy knows that Harry Kane is an asset And interestingly, in interviews, Kane's been saying, well, I'm getting older and my value is only going to depreciate. Daniel Levy is only going to get top dollar for me now. If he waits another two seasons, I might not be worth the money that I'm worth now. And Kane knows that. And I think Kane knows that now is the time that if Spurs are going to cash in, it's going to be now. However, with Tottenham in the situation that they're in, they've had a poor Premier League season, all things considered. Can they afford to lose one of their star assets? They don't even have a manager. So it's really interesting. Is it inconceivable to see Kane stay at Tottenham? No, I don't think that's inconceivable because we've seen a lot of strikers be linked with moves away and end up staying. I think Wayne Rooney was one time linked with a move to Manchester City and then ended up signing a new Manchester United contract when he was at Old Trafford. Alan Shearer, we know. a bit different though. That was more to do with yeah, I know, but Wayne still... Rooney trying to get more money, wasn't it? Yeah, I get that. But Harry Kane wants to get trophies and I don't think he's mm. going to get that at Tottenham. You can't write that into a contract. No, you can't, but you can give yourself a better chance by moving clubs. Mm. So I think everyone knows what Harry Kane wants. I think everyone knows what Daniel Levy wants. He wants 150 million plus, And if that isn't the case, okay, we'll keep him. He's still a top quality striker. Fine. 
So I think that the cards, unfortunately for Kane, because of the long contract, are being held by Levy and Tottenham Hotspur. And I think that that is why, even though everyone's talking Kane up with a move away, I don't think it is inconceivable that he could stay. I think that we could reach the start of the season and Harry Kane could still be playing for Tottenham. Because I think deadline day, what is it, a couple of weeks into the season? So we might even see Kane play the first couple of games of the season for Spurs. Mm. And then maybe if it really gets down to the to the wire, then we might even see him play the rest of the season for another club. I don't know, to be honest. Um, but certainly uh, this isn't going to go away until England are out of the Euros or the Euros finish. Spurs' first game of the new season is against Manchester City as well, which could make that a very interesting game. A story that caught my eye in the mirror was Manchester United offering Jesse Lingard a new deal. Three years on the table, apparently, amongst that interest from West Ham where he spent most of last season on loan or the second half of last season on loan anyway. Does it feel like he's signing a contract to sit on the bench here, Marley? And I'm cautious of saying that after the, uh, the famous <laughs> Phil Foden tweet signing to spend five years on the bench at City. But, I mean, you look at... He wasn't getting into a poor Manchester United team. And Manchester United are improving. They're looking at bringing on more players. I don't see how Jesse Lingard feels he's going to get an opportunity at Manchester United mm. in the next three years. Yeah, it's... It's a weird one. I think the way you're definitely going to get games if you're Lingard is to move permanently to uh, to West Ham or to someone else. However, you know, I mm. think I said this a few weeks ago, his, his stock is never going to be higher than it is now. So if you are ever going to break into the Man United team and get chances, it's after you've had six months reminding everyone what a good player you are. So it all depends on, on the, the plans at Man United. You know, are they going to play to a system where he can get in the team alongside Bruno Fernandes rather than instead of him because if it comes down to instead of him he's never going to get a game um, you know can he can he make a right wing position his own um, it, it all depends really it depends what Man United want from him it depends what he wants from his, his sort of game time and all the rest of it so it is a risk if he does sign this new deal it is a massive risk and he's got to get it right because he's He's what twenty eight years old or something like that. So he's he's got to he's got to get this one right because mm. this is the, this is the peak of his career, and he's shown that he was unlucky to get to cut from the England squad, the the extended one. So he's got to get this one right. So it just depends on the promises he's been made, and uh, the confidence he has in himself. I think. Interesting West Ham news as well. If you're following that kind of thing, is that Felipe Anderson could be on his way back to Lazio after the club reopened talks to sign him. Obviously, came from Lazio in the first place. Been offloaded for around £10 million, uh, considering West Ham paid £35 million for him. More great business yeah, from, uh, brilliant. from those two. Well done, Golden Sullivan again. Brilliant business <laughs> acumen, so he could be off anyway. Back to Syria A, being offered to a few Syria A clubs, reportedly. Uh, I'm going to make you talk about Southampton, Niall, because I know how much you love Southampton. They're a couple of... Yeah, welcome back <laughs> off holiday, Niall. First podcast, let's talk about them. Great, thanks, Jim. A couple of signings that they're interested in. This is coming from The Athletic. First is French defender Romain Perraud, who I don't know anything about young defender, 23 years old. The other one I know slightly more about, Blackburn Rovers striker Adam Armstrong, who's 24, been banging in the goals in the championship. Firstly, on Armstrong, it feels like he could be one of those players that's plucked from the championship and thrust into the Premier League, doesn't it? There's a few clubs competing for his signature. 
Yeah, well, Marley will know a little bit more than me about Adam Armstrong because he used to be at Newcastle and was one of the promising young talents coming through um, a few years ago and ended up moving on to Blackburn, I think. Was it initially on loan and then they signed him permanently? Um, He's played in League One a few times against my team, Portsmouth, so I've watched him closely. In fact, he scored goals against Portsmouth, I remember. Um, He's quite a lively player. And he's almost like a, he plays, I think he plays best as a 10. And I am speaking just purely off memory here. So things might have changed in the couple of years that Blackburn have been back in the championship. But um, he, he sort of linked up really well with Bradley Dack, who they've got at Blackburn. I think he's injured at the moment and has been for a while. But definitely, um, he's a really useful and, and lively young player. And I think he could do a job in the Premier League. I think he's shown that he's championship quality. He was certainly too good to play in League One when he was down in the third tier. So I think certainly it's someone that I'm not surprised that Premier League sides of Southampton's ilk are keeping an eye on. Blackburn obviously are a side that are underachieving really. They're a former Premier League champion and they'll be hoping that they want to be sort of back in the top flight as soon as possible. It's been a tough few years for Blackburn and their supporters, particularly with ownership concerns and stuff like that. And their bitterest rivals, Burnley, are in the Premier League and have been for a long time. So to lose Armstrong would be a blow to those chances of getting back into the Premier League. At least that'll be their aim at the start of the season. I think they'll be eyeing up a playoff spot come May. But in terms of Armstrong's abilities, I think he's someone who, who can prove himself uh, as a Premier League player. He wasn't really given too much time at Newcastle. I'm sure Marley would be able to elaborate on that. But um, if you think of Southampton's policy of signing players from the Championship, the most recent one was, was Che Adams. And that took almost a whole season for that one to get up to speed. So, you know, now Che Adams is kind of looking like a Premier League player, I think it's fair to say. But for a good 12 months, he just looked for, looked to me like a bit of a busted flush. So I think they're going to probably be having to dip into their pockets to the tune of 15 to 20 million. Maybe the market's changed. Maybe I'm miles wide of the mark and Blackburn fans feel that he's worth more. But certainly I can see why clubs of Southampton's stature are interested in a player like Armstrong because he's been consistent, a consistent performer in the championship and has, uh, has done the business for Black for a number of years now it's always a bit of a risk when you've got a player coming off the back of a season where they've scored a hatful of goals where they've maybe not reached that height previously as you say he's been consistent but 28 goals in 40 matches from last season is absolutely superb form in any league what about the other fella the uh Romain Perraud. Do we know anything about him? Uh, no, I've no idea. <laughs> Marley, you're pretty good on your European football. You must be able to offer some insight on this one. Uh, I am, but this one's caught me off as well. I literally don't know anything about him. Um, when okay. I watch French That's football... That's why you listen to the Football Social Day podcast. <laughs> <laughs> insight sorry, and analysis like that. Apparently he, he plays he... for... Who does he play for? Nice. He says plays for Brest. Oh, Stade Brestois. Okay. Yeah, I mean, when I watch French football, it tends not to be Brest, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I literally don't know anything about him. I, I do apologise, but it's uh, he's a left back, and Southampton need a left back because the Ryan Bertrand is has obviously left after his contract expired. So it's clearly somewhere where they need investment quick because they've lost the captain and they need a replacement. So as we know, the French league is is generally a little bit cheaper than the other four major leagues. So Fair play. It makes sense on, on the base of it. I've just never seen the kid play. Right, let's finish off with a more familiar face in Renato Sanchez, who currently playing for Lille. One of those players that has failed to live up to the high expectations that were set on him at an early age. He's 23 now. 90 Minutes reporting that Arsenal are interested in their complete scattergun approach to transfers that they appear to have this window. Um, 
I mean, he feels like he could be a replacement for Granit Zaka, I think, who pretty much confirmed that he's off to Roma. So you can see how Sanchez would work for Arsenal. Do Arsenal have a bit of a problem here, Niall, in terms of attracting players? We saw a couple of weeks ago Emiliano Buendia from Norwich turning down the chance to go to Arsenal in favour of a move to Aston Villa. And they just seem to have the thing, the it that attracts players to them. They've got a great stadium, but they've got a manager who is ultimately unproven, even though he comes with a great reputation from Manchester City. They seem to be in constant turmoil. It's difficult to see how players of the right quality are going to want to go and play at the Emirates other than for the paycheck. Yeah, they've got a problem. Um, um, We've spoken about Arsenal so often on the podcast and it's always the same issues. And everyone says give Arteta a transfer window. Well, he's had a couple now and... um, It'd be interesting to see what happens in this summer's window because Arsenal domestically had a awful season. I mean, I think what was it they finished eighth or ninth in the end. Mm. Um, I mean, they they were twenty to one to be relegated at one point last season. Twenty to one. I mean, that's incredible. They should be in the two thousands to five thousands to one to be relegated. This is Arsenal we're talking about here. But um, you know, every team has their peaks and troughs, and Arsenal are currently in a big dip, and it's up to them to climb their way out of it. Whether the fans have faith in the ownership and the management team to get them out of the rut, I'm not so sure. I mean, we talk about the big six and those Super League clubs, and why are Arsenal involved when they finish ninth in the Premier League? The reason they were involved in the Super League is because they are undoubtedly one of the biggest clubs. In English football, they're one of the richest clubs in the world. They have one of the biggest fan bases in terms of the English football, uh, in terms of English football clubs across the world as well. So I can see why players would want to come and play for Arsenal. Living in London's an attraction. Arsenal are a team who um, who have played attractive football in the past. They've produced some some excellent players over the years. So I can see why um, why Arsenal would be an attraction. Um, and it's all about what the manager says. If the manager says to Renato Sanchez or whoever's coming in, you know, we've got this plan to build ourselves up to be a Champions League contender again in the next five years. Um, and, you know, the player's enthused by it, as well as the paycheck, of course, then you can see why people would join Arsenal. Um, it's a building project. It's a big project. I just think, like you say, Jim, they do have problems. And, you know, it's they're ones we've underlined time and time and time again. Do the ownership have significant interest enough in Arsenal being a success? Or are they just comfortable with them being in the Premier League every season? A bit like what Marley's had to go through with their owners over at Newcastle United. So I think there is a danger of Arsenal turning up, um, uh, turning out that way and just kind of floating around the Europa League places. Maybe that's their place now. Maybe they've been replaced as a as a heavyweight by the likes of Manchester City. So who knows? Um, Arsenal have got their issues. I think it'll be interesting come a month's time how they look in terms of squad. So I'm quite keen to kind of hold my tongue until I see what actually happens in the market. On the sour note of Arsenal being the new Newcastle United, we will end today's Football Social Daily podcast. Niall Marley, thank you very much for your company. We'll be back again tomorrow with another podcast looking ahead to that all-important England versus Germany game. Don't forget you can get the latest news on your domestic clubs, be it Arsenal or Manchester City or Tottenham or West Ham or whoever, at the Sports Social website, sport-social.co.uk. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, batter, batter. Are you ready to hit a home run with flavor? Step up to the plate and swing by Penn Station East Coast Subs, where every bite is a grand slam. Craving a classic Philly cheesesteak or maybe a savory chicken teriyaki? Or how about loading up on their delicious fresh-cut fries? Call it a triple play by ordering Penn Station's signature fresh-squeezed lemonade. When it comes to subs, Penn Station is the big league. Order online at penn-station.com or stop at a store near you. Penn Station East Coast Subs.